Welcome everyone. Um, we hope that you and your families are doing well and staying safe. Uh, we're happy to host you today in the fifth and final webinar of our series um, on active Palestinian archives, preserving uh, Palestinian culture and heritage. Uh, these webinars have addressed collective or formal forms of archiving, whether by museums, scholars, or institutions. And today we have a different approach. The People's Archive, personalizing and accessing Palestinian history, offers an alternative and intimate perspective on how to view and use personal items of everyday Palestinian communities across three continents. It allows us to look at the Palestinian people's familial belongings and their place in the Palestinian narrative. It also allows us to look at the ways in which the people recreate a representation of their history in posters and artwork. We have today a wonderful lineup of panelists who have so much to share from personal stories, academic success, or community building. From Barranquilla, Colombia, Brighton, UK, Bethlehem, Palestine, and Washington, DC. Before I introduce our speakers, I would like to ask you to feel free to use the Q&A option at the bottom of the screen um, and send us your questions for the panelists for the end. I will begin by introducing the, um, our panelists today. We have Odette Hidi David. She is a Colombian Palestinian researcher, cultural activist, and adjunct professor of the Department of History and Social Sciences at Universidad del Norte in Barranquilla, Colombia. She also serves as the director of the Institute of Arab Culture of Colombia, which is an educational organization that promotes intercultural dialogue between Colombia and the Arab world. She has curated several Palestinian tatris and mother of pearl art exhibitions. Dr. Zena Almastri is a senior lecturer at the University of Brighton, UK. Before taking up her post at Brighton, she was both an independent graphic designer and an academic at the American University of Beirut. She is the author of Off the Wall, Political Posters of the Lebanese Civil War, and curator of related traveling exhibitions and online archival resources, one of which she will be presenting today. Her most recent book is um, Cosmopolitan Radicalism, the Visual Politics of Beirut's Global 60s, which explores the transnational circuits that animated Arab modernist pursuits and sheds light on the forgotten trajectories and graphic design practices of its protagonists, who are Egyptian, Iraqi, Lebanese, Palestinian, and Syrian artists who wove through Beirut in and out of its flourishing art galleries, publishing industry, and political movements. George Al-Amam is an academic researcher and collector in the fields of Palestinian art and material culture. He's the advisor to the Bank of Palestine group in fields of art, culture, and diaspora. And he is founder of Dar al-Sabbagh Diaspora Studies and Research Center, which he will be talking about today. He is also a consultant to the scientific committee for the Terra Sancta Museum of the Custody of the Holy Land. And finally, of course, last but not least, from the Museum of the Palestinian People, is Nizar Farsakh. He is a trainer focusing on le leadership, advocacy, and negotiations. He worked for two years at the Project on Middle East Democracy in DC, building the advocacy capacity of Arab CSOs. And before that, he was the general director of the PLO delegation in Washington, DC for two years. He also advised senior Palestinian leaders, including the president, the prime minister, and various ministries. And he is currently involved in several nonviolence initiatives in Palestine and the United States. And he's the chairman of the Museum of the Palestinian People. I leave the floor to you, Odette, if you can start. Uh, thank you, Laura. And I am very happy to be joining from Colombia. 
and very proud to share this space with um, people that I admire very deeply and that I hope I can um, become like them someday. Uh, also, I would like to thank you all for, for joining. I feel that this is a very important chapter in the collective struggle of the Palestinians and the Palestinian narrative. Um, at the end, I feel that sometimes we cannot control some of the things that happen beyond our diasporic borders. So we are left to embrace our Palestinianness from our diasporic dwellings. And this is how my family came in contact with their Palestinianness, precisely through art, through archives, through the personal, familiar, and also the diasporic stories of our community. So as to give you a broad example or um, an idea of who we are in Colombia, um, as you may know, uh, Palestinians are in Latin America. Um, they have been in Latin America, Central America also for over a hundred years. They came during the Ottoman period. They began coming during the Ottoman period and they obviously continued coming after the Nakba. My mother's side came after the Nakba. My father's side came before the Nakba from Bethlehem. And Colombia is not the biggest community, of course. We have half a million Palestinians in Chile. We have a huge community in El Salvador. Um, but there is a community in Colombia. Uh, usually people know Colombia for the Lebanese immigrants, which are many, of course, which are more than Palestinians, but there is a a vibrant Palestinian community, especially where I live, which is in the northern region of the country, in the Caribbean. So we, we do exist, and that is precisely where I want to begin. Why are the personal histories important for us? It's a personal feeling, and I, I would say that I feel that Latin American, Central American, Palestinian communities have been marginalized for many decades until recent. For example, with Dar al-Sabah, a marvelous initiative in Bethlehem, we've been able to reconnect. But before, almost all the work was very political, very scarce, and maybe it was because of a distance barrier, geographic distance, or maybe because a linguistic barrier, or maybe because the communities in Latin America were formed before the Nakba, the biggest communities. Um, maybe all of these reasons had an impact on how these communities see themselves. So now we have fourth generation, fifth generation Palestinians who are not necessarily aware of their heritage. And it is very hard also in a society where Palestine has been very stigmatized due to the internal conflict and the internal situation of Colombia. So there are many factors that affect the way in which the Colombian Palestinian community has developed. Of course, there has been a lot of movement. There has been a lot of initiatives, organizations, events, exhibitions throughout the years. I remember my parents being very active in the 90s and that's how I became active because of them. And when I look at their pictures, organizing community events, exhibitions, I was there. So also that's to share a little bit the importance of family work, you know, when, when among the family you see other members doing something for Palestine, somehow you get involved. And that's what happened in my case. Um, so I feel that because of all these reasons, 
we have been somehow marginalized from the broader discourses and narratives of Palestine. Sometimes we only, we're only studied as the Palestinian diaspora, how we came here, how we settled in Chile, or why we settled in Colombia, our businesses, how the pioneers managed to enter the country. That's the, the majority of the research done. But there is a whole, a whole other um, narrative that has to be shared as well. And that's precisely what I want to share with you today. So I will begin showing you, um, sorry, yes, a presentation. Um, some pictures that I have gathered over the years from my parents' work. And what I want to convey is the importance or rather the very much popular phrase that the personal is political, but in the case of Palestine and in the diaspora in Colombia, it is very political because as I will tell you with these pictures, my father, who is this one here, I don't know if you can see my pointer, Nope, okay. The one in the corner, in the right corner, and my mother is in the other corner. Um, they took their family histories, the familiar histories of the diaspora in Colombia, and they managed to revive an ancient, not an ancient, but a very old Palestinian art. And that's for me a very strong political statement. So as you can see, my parents were always with the community, other community members like Patricia Wichaibe, um, and other many people that I don't want to mention because then I don't mention all of them and I get into trouble. So they were always very active. Um, my father and Patricia actually created this room at the local Arab club, very Alhambra inspired, very Moorish, but that's another story for later. And they used it as a, cultural center. This was in the early 90s, 90s. They did events, they had an exhibition, they gave courses on Arabic history, culture, Palestine, whatever. So they were always very active. Um, we as a community published also, for example, magazines. We made these magazines possible with the help of members of the community who, who would contribute economically. Um, it was a very beautiful initiative. I had, I was part of it until 2008. But what I want to focus on is in the art of Mother of Pearl, which is something that usually is in the sidelines when we talk about Palestinian art. Usually Tatris gets a lot of attention because there are many, many important Tatris um, artists lately, which I admire. But Mother of Pearl perhaps doesn't get that much visual attention. So how did my father and our family began interested in the art of Mother of Pearl carving? Basically, uh, my great grandfather visited Bethlehem in 1950. After coming to Colombia, he went back and he bought up a coat of arms, sorry, a last supper from Bishara Subi, an important master in Bethlehem. He brought the, the art piece to Colombia, and many decades later, my father received this art piece, and he was intrigued by the work. He didn't know much about it by then, just what everyone knows um, about Mother of Pearl, which is the small souvenirs that people get when they go to Bethlehem, but nothing else. 
So he began doing research with my mother and another Colombian historian, and they published this book in 2004, which is in Spanish, I'm sorry, and it's the first book that narrates, reconstructs, and preserves the history of Mother of Pearl done in the diaspora, done in Colombia. The coat of arms that you see in the book was gifted by a Palestinian family that came to Colombia in the 1920s. It was a gift for the Colombian authorities. And this coat of arms is today in the office of the mayor, of the governor of our city. You can see a bit of the coat of arms here. He was a previous governor. So it's in his office, right? Next to Simon Bolivar. So this is, so this was the pretext of my parents doing this very extensive research. They went several times to Bethlehem. My father also went to many private collections in Europe, to museums, um, the Vatican museums, museums in Russia, in the US, Italy, to try to reconstruct the story of Mother of Pearl because this story has also been taken away from us. Uh, it's all in Europe or in, in the diaspora because this art was precisely something used by Palestinians to for important people i mean it was yes there was this line for pilgrims um, for souvenirs religious souvenirs made of mother of pearl since the 16th century but then there was this other line of workshops that made art and it was gifted to important figures for obviously political favors or other things so he made this book with my mother and then he opened his own workshop in Colombia in 1998. This is a web page if you want to. This is him with one of the artisans. The workshop is all made by Colombian artisans that have been trained by my father in this art. He has learned it from a masters in Bethlehem, from books, from observation, and he has been able to, re to rescue this art and open a workshop in Colombia. And the workshop is fortunately still open doing art. Uh, they make art um, inspired in, uh, in all the techniques, motives of traditional Palestinian art of mother of pearl. He also um, restores, I don't know if that's the word, but he fixes maybe some old pieces that are in private collections. And now he's doing his own artwork. Um, he has recently designed this collection of shells, huge Australian mother of pearl shells, engraved with different motives, taking a little bit of distance from the traditional art of Palestinian art of religious symbolism and coats of arms of royal houses or countries. And he has now developed his own um, style, very contemporary in which he, he also includes a lot of colors and all other shells because we're in the Caribbean. So he tries to combine all of these different um, elements. This is a shell um, that tells the story of Bethlehemite immigrants arriving to Colombia in the early 20th century. So you see a lot of Colombian local species. You see the mother and the children with their traditional pops and the immigration official. He also makes um, other shells inspired in 
actual events of Palestine, like stories and images of Palestine, like for example, the cabbage sellers. And like this, we have over a hundred shells that he's done. We were able to create a museum to house his collection because um, besides doing his own art, he also collects pieces. Um, and also, for example, old instruments, pictures of the old masters and um, workshops in Bethlehem. So we were able to do this museum, but unfortunately it's closed. Yeah, to the public right now. That's another story. And finally, we do some exhibitions. We, had, we have to do it in shopping malls because in my city, there are not many cultural venues. So this last year we did it at a shopping mall trying to make a connection between Bethlehem and Barranquilla. And this connection is done through the diaspora, right? Through the historical ties between these two cities, because this city has many, many Bethlehemite immigrants. Sorry, recently the workshop has done several important artworks. One was gifted to Prince Charles during his visit to Bethlehem. And this one was um, commissioned by uh, a friend in Qatar, and it's now in the Museum of Islamic Art in Qatar. So I finish now, and thank you for listening. Later, we will answer some other questions. Thank you so much, Odette. These are very interesting. I put Odette's Instagram handle in the uh, chat. You can all follow her there. She has a lot of similar information on the Palestinian community in the Caribbean and in Colombia. Um, George, if you would like to go ahead um, with your Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure to, to start with you all. Okay, so I'll just give a quick uh, background for, about myself and about uh, my act of collecting. Actually, I started collecting since the age of five. I started collecting stamps, coins, uh, etc. And uh, my act of collecting just shifted uh, from uh, from stamps at the beginning to coins. And then with the influence of my family's background, my family is, is uh, deeply rooted into the industry of the mother of pearl carving. Again, following, uh, adding to what uh, Odette said, um, actually uh, I worked with my father in his uh, souvenir shop. Since I was a little kid, I used to go there and I got influenced. And then uh, I went abroad to study art history and, and to study the, the history of iconography, Christian iconography. And then I started collecting Palestinian material culture. Uh, uh, the screen you are seeing is some few examples of my uh, uh, collection. I do have a, a huge collection uh, of mother of pearl artifact. Maybe it's the biggest uh, worldwide. Uh, I have here uh, um, a model for the Church of the, uh, of the Nativity. It is one of the three non-surviving models. We, I have in the collection some uh, uh, dresses from all over Palestine, but focusing mainly on the city of Bethlehem. Uh, I have the modern contemporary art. I'm showing here a super rare uh, piece by Najil Ali, an original piece by Najil Ali. I'm showing also a painting by the late uh, Samir Salame. I'm showing also um, a mother of pearl shell signed by uh, Abu Fahele, uh, an Armenian pottery vase, and also books and manuscripts. Uh, while starting my collection, collection uh, and the act of collecting, I started 20 years ago professionally. 
I always collected books and manuscripts, whether I was collecting mother of pearl, I was collecting dresses. The act of collecting books and manuscripts continued from 20 years till today. And actually, I work as a consultant for the Bank of Palestine group. And one of my uh, um, things that I have to do in the bank, of my duties at the bank, is to make research actually uh, about people in diaspora. And uh, uh, when I conduct uh, research uh, for people in diaspora, it was in order to convince those people, starting in 2012, to come back to Palestine in order to invest in Palestine through the Bank of Palestine. So uh, uh, I started amassing with my late friend Nada Atrash and my colleague Khalil Shoke here at the center, the Dar Sabah Center for Diaspora and Research Studies. I started amassing much information in regards of people in diaspora. So from 2012 till 2020 today, until 2018, especially before the inauguration of the Dar Sabah Center, I started collecting and amassing much uh, research, ready research about families and uh, people in diaspora. From, from that point, uh, in Dar al-Sabbah, we can see uh, today at Dar al-Sabbah, we are offering our uh, services for all people from diaspora coming uh, coming uh, to ask about their origins, about their families. They need information. As Odette said, uh, the connection was lost in, 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 in a way. So our job at Dar al-Sabbah is to provide uh, information for the families coming from diaspora before the COVID-19 period, asking about all kinds of information in regards of their families and their history pre-diaspora, pre-leaving Palestine, before leaving Palestine. So in Dar es Sabah, we are focusing and our archives are consisting of, let's say, five components. We have a, a, a huge archive, which belonged to my great-grandfather, Jacobo Al-A'ma, or Jacob Al-A'ma, who used to live uh, the majority, who lived the majority of his life in uh, Santiago, Chile, and he returned to Bethlehem in 1901, bringing back with him his diaries. I'm showing here on the screen uh, an example of one of his 14 diaries, and on the cover pages he's writing the addresses of his families, uh, his family and friends and relatives in all over uh, the globe. You can see addresses in Santiago, Chile, you can see addresses, addresses in Barranquilla, Colombia. So, one of the major components we have here in Dar Sabah is the archive of Jacob Lama. Uh, we have here also the archives donated to me and to my personal collection by Helen Sim'an. And uh, we need not only personal ar archives, but we need also archives that used to belong to churches. When it comes to the Orthodox, Greek Orthodox Church in Bethlehem, the archives were lost because each priest, when he dies, his family would take the archive. Some people would throw it away, some people would keep it. In the case of Helen Sim'an, her great-grandfather was a very important Orthodox, Orthodox priest in Bethlehem. She kept his archive and she donated this two years ago to my collection. I'm showing here also some photos for the archives of the priest Sim'an. Uh, one of the major books we have here at Dar es Sabah in uh, the manuscript uh, uh, box or uh, drawers, we have here uh, an, a manuscript written in Latin America. 
by a writer whose name is Hanna Musa Al-Ka'ik. Al-Ka'ik is a family that doesn't exist anymore in Bethlehem. The last member from Al-Ka'ik family existed in Bethlehem and lived in Bethlehem during the 1930s. And here you can see at the bottom right side of the book and the picture you are seeing in front of you, his signature, and he, states, he stated that clearly, that he wrote this in Latin America. And especially he wrote the majority of this book, it's a 670 pages book. He wrote it mainly in Santiago, Chile, and he you can see also some uh, Spanish writing uh, all over the right piece I chose to show you from this manuscript. And to tell you a, a brief history about uh, Dar al-Sabbagh before uh, I continue showing parts of my archives that I rely on with my team at Dar al-Sabbagh to produce, uh, uh, um, uh, let's say, um, research and uh, papers for diaspora, for the pe our people in diaspora. Dar al-Sabbagh was established in uh, 2018. In 2016, Mr. Alberto uh, Cassis from Santiago, Chile, originally from Bethlehem, gave me personally the green light to buy back third, a third out of three pieces of his mother's house, Dar Sabah, uh, uh, the, the very famous house which is located today on Star Street, which is part of the World Heritage List of the UNESCO. This house, after we bought it, uh, Mr. Alberto gave it to us as a CCHP center for cultural heritage preservation in order to establish what is known today Dar al Sabah. And uh, the CCHP actually uh, um, renovated uh, it uh, and we inaugurated it in uh, 2018. Mr. Alberto is donating monthly the, all the expenses needed for uh, running the center. I'm here the founder of the center and I have a, a very interesting team of three people led by uh, Mr. Khalil Shoke. We have Iyad uh, Handal and Manal Abu Ayyash also with us. We based our services that are given for free for all of our people in diaspora on the archives. That's why I'm telling you about the archives tonight. The major piece we have is a, uh, is a book I own personally and part of my collection, and you can see it in front of you today. This, this book I bought uh, by chance for, from someone uh, who was teaching uh, at Tarasanta School here in Bethlehem, and before he immigrated to Sweden, he called me in order to offer me his collection of manuscripts. And uh, after negotiations, I have bought them, and the masterpiece in them was this book written by the late uh, priest Ilya Baneot, who happened to be the great-grandfather of Mr. Alberto, the owner of the house uh, of Dar es and within this book, which was, which started, he started writing in it in 1858, lies the names of all the Orthodox community in Bethlehem from 1858 till 1922, which is the death of this priest. You can't imagine how many names were missing from the history of Bethlehem. And 90% of the names are people in diaspora. So by having this book, we, can, we started at Dar al-Sabbagh offering really professional services to our community in diaspora, and especially by pinpointing and by shedding a light on their histories. So before COVID-19 period, people used to come to knock our doors and we used to offer them, I will show you later, uh, many uh, uh, ready uh, research and many ready papers for each and every family. We have here another, uh, let's say, example from uh, my personal archive, which is part of the Dar al-Sabbagh 
archives today, we can see um, a, um, a book written by another priest dating back to 1773, an 18th century Bethlehemite manuscript. Um, when we started, actually, I, I tried to give my team the most professional training and with the help of the IPS, I'm, I'm thanking the IPS, uh, all of the uh, directors, all of the workers at the IPS, especially the Ramallah team for uh, helping my team in order how to proceed, how to work in a more professional way with the documents I have in Dar es Sabah. You can see here Professor Salim Tamari and, uh, and all the team. And today, the majority of my personal archive that used to belong to my great-grandfather is well-kept in asset-free material, documented, scanned, fully digitized, and also the archives of uh, uh, Helen Sim'an, the Cassis family, all the books and manuscripts that belong to my, and belongs to my uh, uh, personal archive. Also, we are relying on our huge, deep uh, uh, connections with uh, the churches. Uh, it, to put aside the Orthodox Church, which we have uh, its uh, records, especially for the people in Bethlehem, we have great connections with the Catholic Church, with the Assyrian Church, and we have also a, a copy of the uh, Islamic Ottoman courts, which, are, which is having also uh, uh, the list and the names of all the Muslims and all the Christians of the city of Bethlehem and the governorate in general. You can see here an example of how do we keep uh, our uh, archives. And this is an example uh, of the, uh, let's say, the research we are, the church is offering since 1512. There was a, a decree from the Pope of the Vatican for the Catholic Church in, in Bethlehem and in Palestine in general to start archiving. So we have access to those archives dating more than 500, 500 years and we are using them. And here on the right side of the screen, you can see uh, also uh, an example from the Ottoman census, uh, which is the Sijilat al-Mahakim uh, al the Islamic Ottoman courts. We have here also uh, showing you uh, a final, uh, let's say, uh, re research, how we present our research for the families. You can see here a, um, a research conducted for the Abu Hamame family uh, uh, from Bethlehem, from the Hrizat quarter. You can see the table of contents, how we, uh, we have an introduction about Bethlehem, we have an introduction about the Hrizat quarter, we have specific history of the Abu Hamame family. If we have photos, we can give photos for the family. If we have maps for their houses, for the locations of their businesses, also graves. We, we, uh, uh, we uh, go to graves and we show people the graves of their ancestors. So this is actually a, a glimpse of what we do uh, at Dar es Sabah. Thank you for listening. I hope I, uh, I showed you uh, enough about what we do. Thank you. Thank you so much, George, uh, for all this. Uh, I, again, pasted the link to all the information you can find on Dar al-Sabbagh in the chat, the right chat this time. And now I leave the floor to Dr. Zena Maasri. Yeah, hi. Thank you, Laura. And I'm really pleased to be part of this panel. And thank you all for, for joining us. I'm going to just share my screen or attempt to. So I, I'm, I'm just going to, um, as Laura has asked me to, to actually talk a bit about the collection of visual and cultural and print, print culture that I came to use um, for my recent book, uh, and which in fact dates back to um, a period of the 
Palestinian revolutionary period from the 60s and 70s, which also tells us it's, it's visual and material culture that tells us about the everyday history of that revolution. Um, most of this material was published with, I'm going just to give you some, show some examples and talk about how I came to use this collection. And um, most of this material was produced in Beirut um, in the late uh, 60s and 70s. It's a critical moment, uh, a revolutionary moment when, when Beirut came to be known as, as the Arab Hanoi, basically as a bridge and springboard for the liberation of Palestine, just as Viet, uh, Han Hanoi was for South Vietnam. Um, it was also, it acted as a node, and that's mainly what I try to focus on in the last, in the, in the chapter five and six of my book, um, how Beirut acted as a node of transnational solidarity uh, with the Palestinian liberation struggle, specifically in terms of the arts of, of solidarity at that time, particularly the printed everyday material. Um, the, the thing is that when I began to work on this project, uh, the collection itself was not readily available. It, and it's not something that you will easily find in institutional archives. Um, and so it, it took time to collect, but it also, it also I began to discover that bit by, by bit. So I draw in different collections, some of it private, some of it my own. Um, I, I'm happy to, to respond to questions about that later on. But the idea is that I, I came across this collection when I was uh, working on the project on the po political posters of the Lebanese Civil War, which, which is a project that I began before this uh, book um, and I, I worked on in two, from 2003. In this project, I, I, um, I had focused specifically on the political posters of the civil war in Lebanon from 75 to 1990. And it's through this uh, that I began to discover the, the importance of the political posters for solidarity with uh, the Palestinian struggle. But in that book, I in that previous project, I had to focus only on the, on the, the Palestinian posters that were focused, that were concerned directly with the civil war, but there was so much more material that needed work, the development and work beyond just looking at posters and, and beyond just looking at the framework of the civil war. Um, but it's, what is important for me here in this project is that I began to discover how much the Lebanese political parties which were on the left had built their, their aesthetic experience or their experience of art, revolutionary art on the Palestinian uh, uh, um, experience before that. So, and there were lots of chances of collaborations and workshops between artists uh, on to, to produce posters of solidarity, but also pamphlets and <clears throat> all sorts of printed material that are part of the everyday of that moment, of that historical moment. So in that sense, it, it led me to begin to want to do more research about how Beirut became that space after the war in 1967, that space of solidarity for for different Arab artists who came in and joined that struggle. One of the key examples, like the artist I began to follow is <clears throat> Helmi Touni, who is an Egyptian artist. You can see his poster, the one on the, um, on my right, at least the red one, which is um, the, the, <clears throat> the American-Israeli peace in Lebanon, the red one with the Israeli, uh, 
plane, uh, fighter plane. So he, this is a poster he did for the communist action organization in Lebanon, but Helmi Touni was an, an Egyptian artist who had relocated to Lebanon and worked for different Palestinian uh, organizations and publishers. Um, so I began to look more for, look, uh, look for his work. Uh, he did a lot of work, for instance, with the, uh, one of the key uh, publishing houses in Beirut, uh, the Al-Muassas Al-Arabiya Al-Dirasat Wal-Nashr, the Arab Institute for, publishing, uh, for Research and Publishing, uh, with his, these two covers here that are for Mahmoud Darwish's poetry. But he, so he did, he did uh, posters and um, he in fact stayed in Beirut from 1973 uh, to 1982-83, so for 10 years uh, doing that kind of work. And it was also an important moment because he, he, had to, he was someone who was working for, um, uh, was an, the art director in, in Cairo for one of the key publishing houses, uh, Dar al-Hilal, and he had to relocate when Sadat came to power in, 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 in Egypt because he lost his work. And it's, it's a different long political story, but I'm happy to answer questions about that. Um, Helmi Touni, tracing basically the work of Helmi Touni, I came to Dar al-Fat al-Arabi, which might be familiar for many Palestinian um, uh, generations of Palestinians who've read these children. It's, a, it's an important um, a radical uh, publishing house that was founded in Beirut in 1974 and was uh, developed by the Palestine Planning Center, which at that time was headed by Nabil Shaaf. And he, he had, so the project of Dar al-Fatah be, began with Nabil Shaaf and another militant Egyptian um, committed to the Palestinian struggle, uh, Mahgoub Omar. Um, so it was also, this is a, this is a project that was born out of that uh, revolutionary moment to which Helmut Touni did a lot of illustrations. Um, but he was also not the, not the only one who was doing the illustrations for children's books, um, as I'll, I'll, I'll show you in a minute. But in fact, also that uh, looking at that, the project of Dar al-Fatah, one important precursor to Dar al-Fatah al-Arabi is a project that the artist uh, Muna Saudi had uh, had begun, um, and that uh, that that actually garnered attention to children, um, to children specifically after 1967. Uh, so children's Palestinian children's like the traumatic experiences of displacement and exile, and basically. Uh, their lives, their effective lives in, in the camps, uh, after nine, uh, specifically after 67. So she actually uh, spent time in refugee camps uh, in 60, uh, between 1968 and 1969 with children aged between 5 and 14 um, to help them narrate uh, their, their experiences, but also express visually their emotions and their, their lives in the camps, their experiences of displacement and lives in the camps. Uh, through drawings. And uh, these drawings were compiled together and put into an exhibition that traveled to different places uh, with Muna Saudi, um, and then compiled into this book that she edited um, that was trilingual in English, Arabic, and, and French. Um, and the idea was that fun, like, it was also a way to fund uh, a possible um, art center in, in refugee camps for children. Um, what's interesting here 
is in relation to Dar al-Fatah, so both the attention to children at that moment, but also that the, the, the image that you see on the cover of the book, which is a drawing, um, a child's drawing of a bird uh, uh, flying next, very high next to the sun, is actually what became Dar al-Fatah's uh, logo. So there are connections, and in fact, this is um, the logo itself for Dar al-Fatah was, uh, was done, was, I mean, the idea for the logo was done by the uh, Palestinian artist Kamal Bulata, who sadly left us last year. Uh, so he worked with Mona Saoudi. He was the, originally the, the, the founding art director of, um, of Dar al-Fatah and worked with Mona Saoudi to, to work, to choose an illustration that worked at for, as a symbol for the publishing house. Um, that, uh, Kamal Bulata um, left Dar al-Fatah as he had to leave to the Lebanon to, to the US. And uh, the person who replaced him is another Egyptian illustrator and artist, Mahyaddin al-Labbad, and a political cartoonist who became, the, the took over as the art director for Dar al-Fatah. And for for and lived in Beirut for a few years before going back and continuing the project from from um, from Cairo in um, in seventy seven. Um, so this is one of his earliest projects, a book um, with Dar Fatah. It's uh, Al Bayt, the home, uh, which he. It's an illustrated book by a, st a story by Zakaria Tamil, uh, who is a, a Syrian. Uh, short story writer uh, who actually wrote a lot of uh, stories, children's stories for uh, Dar al-Fatah. Um, so this, this book in fact is, is, is very interesting and I, I actually spend most of chapter, the last chapter on the story of this book because it's a book that traveled, it was published in 1974 or 75 in fact, uh, but it traveled before getting, be, being released in Beirut, it, it traveled to with, uh, with uh, Yasser Arafat to the United Nations headquarters in 1974. Uh, and it was translated to many languages, at least seven languages, and was distributed on the delegates. So it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, but also a controversial story but, um, that I tried to unpack in, in, the, last, uh, in the last chapter. Um, so this is this is also just to give an example of how these these little it's a tiny object it's a tiny book that you can hold in the, within the palm of your hand but that actually gets to move across places as well um, and it's through looking more digging more into the Fatah that you one begins to discover how it was in it in itself a site and a node for transnational Arab uh, solidarity among artists. Um, so it wasn't just um, uh, the like. It, so you had Helmi um, Tuni or Mohyeddin Labad, who were the Egyptian artists who joined that project. Uh, but they were they, with them. There were many other uh, Egyptian illustrators, some who relocated also for two years and worked together with Mohyeddin Labad for an intensive time to produce close to 70 books within the 60 something books in the first year of its the launching of the project um, but also you'd have you had syrian artists such as yusuf abdilki example here uh, or burhan kerkutli uh, who's done beautiful illustrations for the uh, 
a compiled a series of compiled short stories by Rassam Kenafani, the children of Rassam Kenafani. Um, but besides, uh, there's also like uh, there's Kamal Bulata who who also do some did some illustrations for these uh, for these books. So the the question the, the point for me was these are these artistic um, expressions of solidarity were not uh, were, do not feature in any of the history of Palestinian art. Not even Bulata's own book on Palestinian art. Um, so it's a category of art that is, doesn't, is not given sufficient attention. Um, it's not given attention in, in Arab art generally. It's art that is uh, used in print, that becomes ephemeral, that is not like the painting or not like... So it, it's, it's, a, it's something I try to question and try to give more importance to because this is part of the everyday, the sense of the everyday imagination and struggle that people lived and produced and commitments that they were committed Gives us, gives us a testimony to the commitments and, and collaborations. What was interesting also for me that, so this collection, as I was trying to locate this and began to, I was teaching in Beirut in, to graphic design students and began to show this material because students in graphic design were eager to see examples of previous designers and illustrators uh, from the Arab world and particularly with with these issues around identity and struggle and then it's also that the collection began to grow as I have um, students who actually grew up on these books and they will bring them to me so it's it's so some of these collections are also documented from some of my former students and friends whose parents were part of this project and then it, it unravels a whole story uh, but it also unravels something that's also that's very that's important. That besides Dar el Fata, Dar el Fata was just one site in which these artistic collaborations developed, um, specifically in relation to um, both uh, a sense of solidarity and commitment to the Palestinian cause, but also with the idea of a revolutionary hope for for that generation at that time for the broader Arab world. Beirut, so that there's Dar al Fata, but there's other sites in which these um, uh, collaborations uh, materialize. One of the examples, the earliest example I, I was trace, I could trace was um, this project for the Friends of Jerusalem uh, by the Friends of Jerusalem, was, which was uh, done just in 1968 as a, 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 um, a series of solidarity posters, which were compiled by. Um, another important figure in Beirut, uh, artist uh, Waddah Faris, but he, he asked different Arab artists to, to, sub, to submit work, to send work, and, and some of the proceeds would also be used for char charitable causes. So here we have artists from Iraq, now very famous, Dia Al-Azawi, Qadim uh, Haider, and also Jumana Husseini Madez. There's, it's a whole series of posters where art gets to be democratized and reproduced in the everyday to, to stand for, for a political issue. Um, but what, further than that, there's also been um, examples of artwork that goes from posters to little books and children's books, but also to postcards and to stamps. And these same artists had their work in these everyday um, forms of prints and, and uh, visual culture. 
So here we have a series of uh, postcards that were uh, produced uh, by the PLO um, in the, for the 10th anniversary of the Palestinian Revolution in 1975. And it features here the work of um, Muna Saudi again, uh, Mohedin al-Labad, and Kamal Bulata. And in fact, both Kamal Bulata's and Muna Saudi's work, these illustrations were used before in, the, uh, in 1969 and 70. Um, in the periodical Al Hadaf, which was uh, by the uh, the organ of the PFLP, Jalha uh, Shabi, and um, so it's interesting to see how these arts circulated and were part of that. They were they were part of the visuals of the revolution of of the time, and so basically the the in fact the posters that I've shown by by Wadah Faris. He did, them, he, he did that in 68, but he was then asked in 69 by Fetah to reproduce the same project in a series of stamps. Um, so you'd see these artworks again on, on stamps and that sense of a male art that gets to circulate, that crosses borders in a way that people were not allowed to. So it is an interesting idea to think about that material form of art uh, that is not a painting, but that can be easily reproduced and, and that can be transmitted across borders. Um, so here, these, post, these postcards show that same idea and show that sort of how the, there is a sense in these, uh, in these prints that there is an aesthetics of hope uh, that, that was crucial to the revolutionary moment that was part of one's everyday life, that gave a sense of agency to those who were represented and those who, who, for whom these, narr these narratives were important. Um, and it, it's, that, it's, it's that sense of agency that foregrounded the Palestinian struggle as, as a revolution as for, for, um, for the Arab world, basically, and that was galvanized through solidarity. It's, it's something, it's today in the in recent studies or interest in the Arab uprisings, there's more and more interest in that relation between aesthetics and politics and the, the, that everyday sense of uh, uh, struggle in, in uh, attention to the everyday subjective transformation and politicization of the youth in public protest, in, in the in the effective dimension of protest and, and the arts, graffiti, etc. And we know how important these are if we live them, but it's important to go back historically to understand the importance of this material that has been really, had not been given that historical importance. Um, this has, I mean, it's, it's re referred to as, as archival ephemera, uh, and had not been given the same archival importance to documents, but it's also an important testimony to, to that everyday history of the Palestinian struggle um, or, or of solidarity with it. It's not treaties or agreements or that, that leaders, the voices, it's not the voices of leaders and diplomats, but it's that, that it's a people's history. It's, um, and it's in fact that cultural politics that testify basically of these, this material that testify to the collective imaginaries of hope and dreams, basically, of ra radical futures um, of people in their everyday life. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, I just will, will end here and just to say that this is an important study, but also important uh, material to be, to be um, collected, 
and guarded against the historical erasure that that may that we might contribute to by not giving them the importance that they deserve that's it thank you so much dr masi these are fantastic and i'm sure that the attendees have they've already sent in a few questions about what you spoke about that we'll revisit in the q a please everyone if you have any questions send them through the q a we will move now to the museum of the palestinian people with nizar farsakh you can go ahead uh, thank you, Laura, and uh, thank you, Zina. It's a perfect segue to what I want to cover, <laughs> which is how how we can what's out there and how how what role can we play to conserve uh, not only conserve those stories and, and those artifacts, but uh, part of what this the museum is about is uh, pride in the heritage, but also renewal. How do we repurpose our heritage for contemporary purposes, right? Uh, so that it, it, we can uh, thrust it into the future, right? And, and make it relevant as opposed to just a, 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 an act of nostalgia. And we want it to be the fuel for uh, the creativity of the future, right? Um, I'll do my best to, like, I have 10 um, places I want to show you guys. Uh, I'm going to share my screen. So basically, I'm going to spend a minute on each uh, one of them. So basically, um, I'm going to quickly show uh, uh, the Palestinian Museum's uh, virtual tour. I I'm going to talk uh, at the end about the museum again. Uh, and then the different uh, sources of oral history uh, that I think that we found and we thought are uh, useful and um, worth spending time on. Uh, Palestine Remembered, the Palestine Oral History Archive, uh, Arab American Stories, uh, Palestinians Podcast, there's also an Australian one that I found, uh, but also uh, FOSNA, Friends of Sabil North America, they train on how to tell your narrative. They train Palestinians on how to tell their narratives. It's an amazing project. Uh, and also StoryCorps, which is an American uh, organization. They have something that is community uh, 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 StoryCorps. Uh, we did that back in 2019. I'll sp speak about that. And then I'll just give an, uh, an example of the other part of the story that I think is uh, just as important, which is when others speak uh, uh, about us or tell our story and the dangers of that. And Yezen does an amazing job of the voice of the subject and how, uh, um, uh, of course, that applies to, to all people that have been othered by colonialism uh, and brings the Palestinian case. And for us as Palestinians, the, the whole uh, uh, inspiration for the museum is the sense that we as Palestinians our main challenge is that our story has been told by others and it's high time that we had a space to tell our own stories our own ways right so without further ado i'll just quickly go through those uh website i guess and what i'm gonna do i'm gonna share this in the chat so that you have the links as we speak and i need to stop to be able to share on the chat okay all Palestine attendees, yes. Oh, it didn't take all of them. Okay, I'll take this way, it took half of them. Okay. So, uh, uh, uh. So the Museum of the Palestinian People was started by uh, Bashar al-Nassar, who's a great guy from Bethlehem. Uh, his family 
Uh, I won't go to, uh, in, into the story. It's a, uh, it's a nice story, but we don't have time for it, unfortunately. Now, I, maybe I can tell it in the Q&A. Uh, but the basic point is that he felt that there's, when he came to DC, he felt that the museums in DC do an amazing job in really getting you in other people's worlds uh, and in getting immersed in other people's stories. Uh, and he sensed the, the absence of the Palestinian story. Where am I? Uh, where is my story, right? So uh, back in 2014, he started what was called the Nakba Museum, and it uh, evolved into the Museum of the Palestinian People because we wanted to, I joined in 2017 uh, as the chair of the board, and we wanted to make it a larger conversation, uh, not just about Nakba, but about us as a people, and the focus on the people and not just the place, uh, because we want people to connect with people, right? We want the visitors to connect with us as human beings so that they start to care about what's happening to us. We first need to get them to care before we give them the information or uh, uh, getting them to uh, want to know more about our uh, predicament and our challenges, uh, because if they don't care, it doesn't matter what amount of facts we throw at them, uh, uh, it's not gonna have the same effect. Uh, but if they care, they're gonna be curious, they're gonna be invested in knowing why are these amazing Palestinian people who are so inspiring, uh, why are they still suffering, why are they uh, still not free, and they would want to uh, support uh, uh, individually. So that's the, that's the ethos of the museum. Now, um, we got, uh, we were very inspired by the fact that uh, many people loved the, the exhibits. Uh, they ended up in three and a half years, they went to 50 locations in the US. And uh, one of the, uh, a couple that uh, visited the exhibit in New York, in Manhattan, New York, was so impressed and inspired. Uh, they said, we have this space in DuPont Circle in Washington DC, which is a, a very great uh, cultural center in DC. Uh, you can have it free of charge for two years. So we were really uh, 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 moved by this generosity. And they're, like, they're not even Palestinian, they're just white American folk. Uh, but they were really in, in inspired by how the curation touched them, right? They connected to it. Um, so we opened the museum last year. It's a small space, it's 800 square uh, uh, feet um, and uh, like 90 square meters. And um, we had exhibits in it. I'll quickly show you something called the virtual exhibits. Uh, so I'm, I'm showing you on the website so that you know how to get there. There's the, the website of a museum. You go to visit and then down the choice virtual museum. And this was, I guess, very propitious in the sense that uh, one, again, another person, average American has nothing to do with Palestine, a, a cartographer, geographer, a GIS expert, uh, was inspired by the museum and he offered to create this uh, virtual exhibit for people who cannot come to, to, uh, to the museum. So he created this vir virtual exhibit, uh, again, free of charge, you go in and you can see the different parts, uh, different sections, click to learn more, right? Uh, here's an important map that we show in 1938 shows Palestine, but also shows Bible lands. It's a National Geographic map of the Holy Land. And this is what I was talking about, how our story is told by others. And we showed this at the beginning to show people that one of our main challenges is here is a National Geographic map of 1938. And the map says Bible lands, cradle of Western civilization. So 
the story of the Palestinians is being, not only is being told by non-Palestinians, but is, is being told for non-Palestinian purposes. And that's a big chunk of our predicament. And that's why we need to uh, uh, not only uh, regain our uh, narrative, but to broadcast it uh, loud and, which is very important, in ways relevant to the listeners. And that's what we try to do in the museum. Um, I'm not gonna do, go through the tour, but you can uh, go to the tour, click on different parts, and uh, there are different sections. There's also a section of where Palestinians are today, making their mark, which is an important theme that we have that after you see all the adversity that Palestinians have gone through, the last thing you see is where are Palestinians now, right? And the amazing things they're doing, Edward Said, Rashid Atlib, uh, uh, DJ Khalid, and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's about the museum. I'm gonna maybe come back if I have a bit of time. The, the other website is uh, Palestine Remembered. Um, we found that this is the, the one with the most comprehensive uh, oral histories. They have around 600 of which many are videos. Um, and what I love about it uh, is that it is, um, I, I can't see the chat. So if there is anything urgent, Laura, please tell me. No worries. Okay. Uh, if somebody's not following or something, right? Um, is um, what they did is that they created it and uh, the, the refugees started populating the, the website with images and videos and recordings. So I love this work because it's, it's kind of like um, a community effort, which I think this is what we need. We need a, a place where we as Palestinians can exist virtually, let's say, so that we can have this conversation and not be, and, and transcend the geographic boundaries we have. And it's kind of the similar experience that we've had in the museum is we thought we were experts on Palestine and Palestinian issues. And as they say, build and they will come. Um, after we opened the museum, we discovered so many amazing, talented Palestinians that are up to amazing things, uh, often no good. Um, but I mean, that was the, the most inspiring lesson we had is once, I mean, the, 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 the um, <laughs> They say the Titanic was built by professionals while Noah's Ark was built by amateurs. So I, we were very hesitant to start the museum because we weren't museum experts. We knew that it, we needed to start somewhere. And once we started, uh, things started happening and people started coming and we started discovering. And th the museum became a hub for people to meet and discover and get, be proud of the Palestinian heritage uh, and do something about it. And this is a key thing also, one of our um, objectives in the museum is that you go in, into the museum, the whole point is for you to be touched and moved. And at the end, there's a, we ask you three questions on a board and you can write your notes. Uh, what surprised you? Um, uh, oh, I forgot the second one. <laughs> um, but the more important one, how do you see yourself as part of the story, right? We do not want people to leave the museum without a, 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 a call to action, a, an invitation to be part of this community because we're not only interested in the Palestinian story as you know, Palestinians are amazing and, and uh, an act of Palestinian chauvinism and like we're such an amazing people. On the contrary, we want to tell our Palestinian story, our human story so that the visitor sees what connects us as human beings. We want it as a platform for the larger universal conversation. We want to be leaders in this universal conversation of making this world a better place, starting 
with the Palestinian story. Uh, so for us, the museum is not a, a presentation and more a conversation, right? We want it to be a start of a relationship, not the end of a relationship. And um, what, when I, uh, like, what I find great in Palestine Remembered is that it's this great resource where you can just go and browse through it and add stuff from your village your own ways, right? So each village is proud of its heritage and it's, it, it decides what is or is not important. Um, another one is, of course, um, a joint project of AUB and the Institute for Palestine Studies, and I believe also the, the museum in, in Birzeit, the Palestinian Museum in Birzeit, uh, where they have this map and you click on the map, you click on the place, and then you get all sorts of information. And if there is oral history, you'll see it there, uh, right? And you can click on it and um, it says here, duration an hour, 23 minutes. Some of them are longer. Uh, so it's a great, um, Again, these are great resources that I highly, highly recommend that you share with others. Uh, at the museum, uh, we're trying and not succeeding very well to try to offer our services to uh, schools and universities uh, to offer these resources as we know there is a demand for the Palestinian narrative. They, they themselves uh, agree that we never hear Palestinian voices. So we're offering these and of course we'd like the museum to, to, to be there. Uh, as resources, so please do uh, uh, approach non-Palestinians in your circles uh, and offer them those, uh, uh, those uh, resources. Um, the other, another one which I thought was very well done was um, Arab American Stories, which was a joint project between PBS and the Arab American Museum in Detroit. Amazing museum. Uh, uh, Diana Abu Ali is a good friend of mine. I'm very excited that she's there. She just joined last year. Um, and, and what's great about it is that they do a good job in rather than just telling your story from where you are, they're telling it from where the visitor is, right? So it is an Arab American story. It's a Palestinian American story, right? So here is the Arab American and some of them are Palestinians and they include uh, Edward Said's uh, sister and uh, Dina Baydallah. Uh, and, and that's another good example of how do you help non-Palestinians uh, give them a window that um, speaks to them, right? One of the, uh, one of, well, we had several great uh, experiences at the museum of, you know, this African-American guy who was helping us with uh, management issues. And when he saw the picture of, um, uh, you know, the, the occupation and destruction, he said, oh my God, this is reminding me of Detroit. He's from Detroit. And for us is that that's exactly what we want. We want you to find your own connection to this. Another young uh, um, student in one of the colleges here, uh, when he saw the, village, uh, the images in the Nakba section of, of people uh, being evacuated from their village, he said, oh my God, this reminds me of my grandmother's story. She uh, was a refugee in, 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 um, in Europe in the Second World War. All those personal connections to Palestine that are coming from personal experiences that make the Palestinian story something that is relevant to the person who is uh, speaking, uh, who is uh, visiting, sorry. Um, Palestinians podcast, a great uh, initiative by our friend uh, Nadia Abul Azam. Uh, I think now she's, uh, she's doing this completely volunteering, uh, but they have some amazing stories. I highly, highly recommend, one of my favorite stories is the Dubani family, a lovely story of a family that uh, came to the US a typical Palestinian-American story that is proud of its heritage and a lovely family. 
again, she does it in a way that's very intimate. Um, uh, you can't but fall in love with the family. And in fact, the Dubani family are our partners uh, here in DC. They uh, do uh, Zayt and Zatar. Uh, so they come, they put Manaish and stuff in front of the museum, and that's how we lure people into the museum. Uh, and they also offer the auction. It's, it's lovely how food can seduce people into coming. Like, total strangers know nothing about Palestine. What's Palestine? Oh, this, this tastes good. Go in. Um, so we use tricks like that. Um, uh, this is, it was funny. I was looking for Palestine Remembered, and I got a, an Australian Palestine Remembered. Uh, so there are a lot of those in initiatives that are out there. Um, and that's why I, um, when I spoke with Laura, I think we, we really need to have, or we should really encourage some sort of repository or some sort of hub where uh, we broadcast it so that all of these resources that are out there are somehow have one repository and then somebody goes and organizes them because these are so useful because they are personal story. You cannot, uh, uh, um, you cannot tell me that my story is wrong. You can argue with my argument, but you can't really argue with my narrative. And I think that's where the entry point uh, is. Um, but of course, they differ in quality. I tried to uh, stack them based on how, how good they were. Uh, Fasna, as I said, friends of uh, Sabir do a great job in doing these workshops for training Palestinians on how to tell their story. And I love how they bring uh, an older person and a younger generation person and they, they, have, they, they flesh it out um, and learn how to tell it. So I highly recommend you see that. The other one is StoryCorps. So StoryCorps, for those who don't know it, is, oh my God, I'm 13 minutes. I should, uh, I'll, I'll finish now. Uh, it's an American organization. They collect uh, American stories and the way they do it is it's a duo. Two people that are in relationship with each other, a, a parent and a child, a child uh, uh, to siblings or uh, um, uh, husband and wife, whatever it is. And they talk about what's meaningful in their relationship. Beautiful pro uh, program, they, it, show, uh, it, it airs every uh, Friday, and they have this specific program for communities, Asian Americans or whatever. They partner with StoryCorps, and that's what we did. We partnered with them two years ago, uh, and we did recordings, I believe, of four Palestinian stories, including the Dubani family. They brought the grandmother, and she spoke in Arabic. She told her story in Arabic, and it was recorded in Arabic. Uh, so I, they, they have, I think, a, a place in Boston, in Chicago, and I think in LA, um, like studios, so you can walk up there and, and ask for a recording, and they have mobile tours. The links are with you. I highly recommend you reach out to them, because again, we should, of course, we want to share our stories with the Palestinians, but the impact is really when, we, when these stories touch American lives. One of our uh, res resident artists, Ahmed uh, Ahmedat, very talented young uh, folk, uh, guy from the Haitian refugee camp, came to the US, uh, became an artist, and um, he tells the story of how one of his proudest moments was there was this family that was American, again, white American family, uh, no Palestinian heritage. Uh, they liked his piece, they bought it, and he was very proud that he managed to, to sell it. Um, and then like a year later, he, he bumped into them and he said, oh, let's have you over for dinner. And he did. He went over and he found the painting in their living room. And he said, I couldn't be prouder. I managed to get into uh, my painting, made it into somebody's living room, into their intimate space. This is how you bring Palestine into people's hearts. And this is what we're trying to do at the museum. Finally, what I'll say about Yazan is that, the, uh, again, I shared the YouTube he speaks about this othering, and not othering, but like the, 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 uh, 
the hijacking of the voice of the subject. And the main theme here, I'm going to show the picture, is that the, uh, this national, he went into the archives of National Geographic and looked at uh, an edition of, I think, 1914 or 1938. And he discovered that uh, the, the, um, the producers used a picture of this young lady, young Palestinian uh, girl. Where is it? I can't find it. This one. Um, he was trying to find a picture. He was trying to basically um, give a picture of what he thought Palestine looked like. So he had a picture of her smiling, but he didn't use that. He used this one where she's just looking down and she's very almost inanimate, right? And he said the impact of that, that Palestinians and, and the audience becomes an object. And then when he looked in the archives, he discovered that there was this beautiful picture of her smiling and radiating. You can see her personality radiating from, from the picture that they chose not to use. And the impact on that, right? Now, he did a tour with this. And in one, I don't know where he was, a woman identified the girl and said, oh, my God, this is my grandmother. And I recognize her because that's my smile, right? So, I mean, I mean, amazing things that happen when, when, you, when you try to, um, so I, I tell this story because that wasn't the purpose Yezen had when he went into the archives, but amazing things happen when you start from the right, when you start from a place of passion and, and commitment uh, to, to values. I'll stop there and uh, see if there are any questions. Thank you so much, Nizad, and thank you all for a very engaging um, presentations. Um, if everybody could stick with us for around 10 minutes or so, we are going to be proposing all the questions that you sent in, and I'll compile a few um, to everyone. Unfortunately, George um, had to leave, uh, but we are going to be sending an email to everyone who attended with the links that Nizaj sent, the information that every panelist had talked about, so you'll be able to get in touch with them. Maybe first, a question to everyone is, how can everyday Palestinians or just everyday individuals um, find familial uh, um, artifacts, engage with familial artifacts, uh, and use them either for research or for personal collections? Um, that's something if you can consider um, to answer. Um, and maybe for Odette specifically, um, the museum you opened, and I know that it closed, if you can talk about how can other communities support these initiatives um, in Latin America that are that collect the personal histories of communities that are in the diaspora, specifically in South America. Maybe let's start there. And I know that uh, Dr. Maasri had uh, looked at one of the questions on Dar el Fata, if you can um, uh, uh, talk a little bit about that, if the books and posters um, that you have presented are accessible anywhere online, um, how can people use them? Odette, maybe do you want to start first? Yes, thank you. Um, two things. First, uh, I forgot to tell something, an anecdote that actually answers the question. Um, my father has always been very curious, right? That's why he engaged in this art he had to reconstruct the history of mother of pearl art from the diaspora. So one of the things that happened is that among the 30,000 Aprox community here in, in Barranquilla, sometimes when people died, 
um, he inherited the, the archives, the family pictures, the books, the belongings of this person because the family didn't give the value to these items. So they knew that there was this weird, bizarre person that collected all of these things that other people didn't give value to. And that's how he managed to gather a huge collection of archives from many families, not only our family, which by the way, we're related to George, the, is the same family. But we have a lot of other family archives from uh, families from Benjala, Betzahur, Betlahem, which are uh, the ones who compose the, the Palestinian diaspora in my city. So it's sad that these families didn't know their value. And that's why I say the personal is political in this case, because having pictures of pre-1948 Palestine is a very strong political statement. And that's something that I have been doing now, not with archives, pictures, letters, but with Tatris. So I have been, me, myself, collecting Tatris from, from families. We have dresses from na before 1948 that people just let, uh, left on their closets and they forgot about them. So that maybe can explain this connection between the families and their heritage. Maybe that can explain why our work has been very hard because we have been alone. It has been a very personal engagement. We haven't had the support really of any institution or any organization, um, not, not from Colombia, not from Palestine. So for example, this museum that I spoke about, which has part of my father's collection and part of the pieces done by Taller Palestina, by the workshop, our family workshop in Colombia, is located at a church, in a church, right? So they, the priest gave us a space because it is sacred art, right? It's religious art. So they were open to give us a space, but it's closed because of administrative issues. And it's just now a warehouse where we keep some of that stuff. So we tried my father's dream. Actually, he's here. His dream was to have um, a museum in Palestine to bring back all of what he had collected to Palestine. But of course, that was very, it has been very hard. The bureaucracy, the lack of maybe interest, that's what's happened to us. Basically, the lack of consciousness of the majority of the diaspora, it's not the same as in Chile, okay? The case of Colombia is different. It's not that we are all the same. Well, he's here. Hello. Hi. <laughs> we hope you're feeling better. We're, we're so happy to have you with us as well. We shared uh, your Jerusalem Mother of Pearl masterpiece on social media yesterday. Everybody loved it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. How are you, all of, all of you? Okay. No, many times I went to Bethlehem and talked to the Minister of Culture, the Minister of Anthropology, the Mayor. Um, also the, the Minister of Exterior Relations. Uh, that was about 10 years ago when I tried to, uh, the original collection that had been collected for 30 years, uh, to give it to Bethlehem back into a museum. But in that moment, uh, the issues uh, were not uh, about museums or about uh, cultural. There was a political uh, problem, uh, the negotiation with the police and that, that took the agenda uh, and put everything else down 
So nobody in that time uh, could give an answer or, or to show interest. Uh, so I was kind of frustrated. So I went back to Colombia and uh, part of the original collection that I have uh, more than 500 pieces, uh, I sold part of them uh, to um, Ramiel Nimer uh, in Beirut. Uh, he has a, a, a museum, he's Palestinian from Ramallah. And uh, I saw that in his hands, he will keep this heritage because this uh, material has been accumulated for 30 years, really do not belong to Colombia. I mean, this is something foreign to, to the people in Colombia. There's no connection about more of Peru, Palestine, Bethlehem, whatsoever with the, with, with the South American people. Uh, so uh, I did that in the, the first part, I did that. I remain, I remain like 20% of the original collection still there, uh, looking to, to finalize someone to, to buy. And the rest of the collection that is the one done by Taller Palestina, um, original pieces, and I did some, some reproductions, uh, very important masterpieces uh, that I saw in many museums. And that's still in Barranquilla in, uh, in the church. That as already mentioned, we have this kind of problem also that there is no interest of the government or the people here. Um, so that collection has been closed for already 10 years. They closed down to the public. It's very well exhibited. Uh, they built a very nice museum with the vitrines and all this explanation, but the museum is totally closed uh, to the public. Mm -hmm. So I asked uh, Oded um, that is um, in, there is an opportunity that I asked to the mayor last time in January, again, uh, a possibility that to send this back to Bethlehem and to make the Museum of Modern Affairs. Uh, they say yes, they were interesting, um, but soon it came the pandemic and all the problems uh, stopped because also, I signed a um, uh, well by word because that moment we couldn't do by paper a commitment uh, to transfer the Taller Palestina workers uh, to Bethlehem and to start reteaching uh, all the antique master techniques that have been forgotten. Uh, and um, with a course of 50 people that the mayor was going to choose along among the population. Uh, to give opportunity to improve the way of life, because uh, model of now become become really um, uh, art craft, you know, like Chinese, like Indians, like people very uh, cheap things for for people for tourists, but the real essence, the the soul of the model of uh, the golden age uh, that was on the on the 1905 to 1970s, that's disappeared completely. That's what I interesting that the people in Bethlehem start learning again back all these techniques. Just for now spending more, it just to give you an example. Uh, in 1905, in, I'm sorry, 1915, a large cross uh, of one meter 50 sold in San Diego, California in the exposition of Panama, uh, Panama the, the, when they opened the Panama Canal, they made an exposition. 
that piece was sold for 25,000 US dollars. In that time, 25,000 US dollars was the equivalent of half million dollars of today. And that time, a house used to cost $5,000 and a car used to cost $800. So you imagine the value that the world have given to this kind of art at that time. $500,000 bring it to up to eight. So my idea was that the people in Bethlehem, they are being exploded by the souvenir shops. They pay what they want, they put the prices, and they work really miserably. They don't even make, they, I don't know how they make to every day, uh, how to survive. So my idea is uh, to start teaching the old techniques where I can, I can make them that a single piece um, that they can be done maybe in three days with the techniques that have been learning. Because I, go, I didn't only learn the antique techniques of Palestinian. I also went to all the, the other schools. I went to France, I studied in Italy, in Turkey, in Cairo, in, uh, in uh, Damasco. I learned everywhere. So today, why Tayel Palestinian is very successful making art pieces is because we learn from many, many, many schools. So this is my main uh, interest to teach the people that one piece that they can make in three days, they can sell it for at least $2,000. And that's something that they can survive and again to revive the, the, this dying art because Today, there is only one person in the whole Palestine that keeps the, the knowledge of the mode of birth. It's Salim Sukhdi, uh, Salim Atik. He was the professor for the old schools. He's the only one. After him, this complete will die. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, no, thank you so much for joining us. Really, this, this was very fascinating. And thank you, Odette, for bringing your father. I hope he feels better soon. Um, I'm going to move on to um, Dr. Maasri, and then we're going to conclude with Nizar. Um, the webinar will be available on YouTube afterwards if anyone is interested, and I will leave my email in the chat if you would like to be connected to speakers or have any questions after the webinar. Um, Dr. Maasri, if you'd like to go ahead. I, I think it's just to respond to several questions about whether, first, whether some of this material is on the Signs of Conflict website. It's not, it's actually not. Uh, the Signs of Conflict was specifically to there's some Palestinian forces that were, that were concerned with the civil war in Lebanon. So this material that is for the book now that I've showed is not yet digitized, but there are projects to try to do that. For Dar el Feta, I think uh, people are, are interested in this. Some of it kept on being reproduced, reprinted some, uh, in, in Cairo, when Dar el Feta relocated to Cairo in, in, um, in 77 and 82. Uh, so you can find some of that with uh, the Rassan Kenafani Foundation in Beirut. Uh, they have not all the collection, but some of some of the reprints. They're not as good quality, but they, they're good enough if you want. Uh, recently, the uh, American University of Beirut's uh, special collection archives have um, co are collaborating with um, with the Palestinian Museum on an, a project. They, they have received a collection um, of Dar el Fata, like as a donation, and they, they are trying to also digitize that, and it will be available 
between the like a digitized by AUB, but for the it's a collection of the Palestinian Museum. Uh, and there is a project that is uh, of an oral history about Dar al-Fatah. So there is a new recent attention, so we shouldn't worry about Dar al-Fatah. I think that's important. There's a project of oral history um, about all the people who participated in Dar al-Fatah and made it, made it happen. Uh, and, and I think that will be available online soon through, through the uh, American University of uh, Beirut's part of their oral history project. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Nizar, if you would like to address a question and then we can conclude. Uh, sure. So what, what you can do, definitely there are these uh, resources. I, I just want to really emphasize that, again, we are not experts. Uh, it was all out of love of Palestine. And I want to emphasize out of frustration that other stuff has not been working. And here I want to be like uh, show vulnerability and, and say like I'm a person who worked in NGO in Palestine, then was part of the Palestinian negotiating team, then was part of the Palestinian delegation here. And it took a, a, a young Palestinian from Bethlehem, uh, um, who was just a fresh graduate in business school to come to DC, uh, I think he was like 26, to come up with this idea. And I was like, oh my God, that's an amazing idea. Of all the projects, I mean, I'm 46 now, and of all the projects I've worked in, this is the most exciting. And when he told me about the museum, I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what we need to do. Of all the things we could be doing, this is it, right? So the, the lesson there is, it's, is a, it is an emergence and it is a discovery. We need to start from a place of love, a place of why we care about Palestine and my own discovery of how I love Palestine in ways different from how my father loved Palestine. I was born and raised in Dubai and, and found my own Palestine. So um, the people that were talking about like, uh, where, like Odette's challenges and stuff, it's all about coming together, starting something, and then things come together. When, when we started the museum, we discovered that the Ramallah Federation here in the US has been for over five years collecting their uh, Ramallah people's, uh, you know, uh, artifacts, and they wanted to partner with us because of, you know, economies of scale. Why, why create two museums, right? So only by doing that do we discover, and, and now the idea is to have, you know, we would be the hub and then we help others. There's another one in San Diego, which is the Palestine House. We help them in uh, uh, registering as a 501c3. So we are, you are not alone. We are not alone. Um, it, it really is not rocket science. It's, it is just a labor of love. So I highly, and uh, one thing I just wanted to add, uh, comment what Laura said, which is let's, if you have any collections or know of any collections, please send them Laura's way so that we have one address where this stuff is. Um, I'm a big fan of IPS. I think it's one of our um, um, the institutions that I'm proudest about that we can show off. Uh, but it makes sense also to have a, um, a, a one contact person for all these things. Thank you very much. And um, I look forward to getting uh, news about new initiatives across the globe. Thank you so much, Niza. It is all for our love of Palestine. So that is a beautiful conclusion. Thank you to all the panelists who joined us. And please have a nice evening, afternoon, or morning. <laughs> Bye. Bye.